This is the 966 episode 120. Richard, hello. Uh, I, I don't know. Can we pretend that we just seen each other since we've been chatting now for an hour? <laughs> it was a, this this was the longest pre-recorded conversation we've ever had. It was 1 hour. So we are 1 hour into a podcast uh, that no one else will hear. So <laughs> Um yes, how's it exciting. Going? 120. We like those big round numbers. Yes, we sure do. Um, we've got a good one this week, Richard. We've got a, a lot of really good topics to discuss. And actually, you know, there's so much going on with Saudi Arabia these days that it, we really had to get out a, you know, really long samurai sword and hack down a bunch of really good things to discuss and run with what we wanted to run with. Because just, you know, as we discussed in a previous episode or two, things are just happening so quickly here. So, um, yeah, we've got a really nice... Uh, menu of excellence today to discuss on episode 120 very excited um yes. before we get going we have some uh we haven't been doing this in recent weeks just because we've wanted to be sort of a little bit uh tighter on our podcast timing also uh richard and i are now about eight hours apart so uh it's a little later here and richard is just gearing up for the afternoon i'm a little jealous of that but uh, a couple pieces of feedback that we got in recent weeks um and i'm getting a lot of it from people here just in person which is so nice um thank you as always saudi hospitality plus compliments about a podcast uh, really lovely to hear and receive this one we received a few days ago um, on our youtube channel from user sun gssed Sungast. I guess, um, quote, love the podcast and love the videos. Where do I find the newsletter to subscribe and receive it? I've been in Riyadh for seven months now and I love it except for the driving. <laughs> uh, <laughs> thank you for that comment um, and the option, the opportunity, I should say, to uh, direct people to our newsletter, which is awesome. Um, it's sustg.com slash the review. And you can subscribe at sustg.com. There's a little box up there that just put your email in there and hit OK, and then you'll get the newsletter for free to your inbox every day and then a weekend edition on Saturday. Uh, so thank you for that comment. It, it's really a great resource and we get a lot of comments on that too as well. So uh, thank you for that. And just one more I want to read here. <laughs> Richard Trimex commented, uh, our boy Trimex, um, 25, 22, <laughs> I guess that oh, reference to the moment in the conversation. You guys really should do a video on the Allah declaration because I cannot find anything online about it in English and no one appears to write about it or explain it. So there you go, some content suggestions uh, from our boy Trimax. Let's do that in a coming episode, Richard. You're right, he's right, we have not discussed that yet, or, or at least made it a big thing. It is funny because you know that was uh, Ryan Al-Yusufi, who that episode was talking about public diplomacy, diplomacy pre-20, vision 2030, 2016 and, and post. And we use the Alula Declaration as a touchstone frequently. Uh, you know, this for us is sort of a benchmark moment when it seemed like uh, the crown prince and the King Salman, you know, pivoted a little bit on how they approached their uh, their public diplomacy and, and their international relations and their foreign policy in general. So, yes, that probably that makes good sense. And there, Trimax, we love him because he is paying attention. He gave us even gave us the timestamp when, when it's mentioned. <laughs> makes it easy for us yeah. to <laughs> go back, reference it and say, yeah, sure, let's uh, let's get into it. Uh, I think. Uh, good point, Richard. I think also Al-Ala sort of is kind of like trending recently as a, you know, diplomatic destination for regional diplomacy. Um, and I know there's some activity coming up there in the next week or so, maybe a little bit later after that. Our previous two-time 
guest on the show, Bilal Saab, said he was going there for some sort of event. But but it's it's kind of interesting that uh, it's more trending as a you know place to gather uh, diplomatic leaders. It makes sense. They're, they're having a lot of confabs there. Not only you know, and, and I know Bilal. I, I, we were in at the airport together. I don't know maybe last March or. Um, and he was headed to a confab there. It's sort of a listening session. Saudis were wanted to talk with people they thought had some uh, some good analysis and good ideas. And like you, we've talked about, you know, uh, I think some of the envoys that President Biden has sent, they're meeting in Alula. It makes sense, you know, it promotes Alula, but it's also a, a nice nice venue to confab at. Certainly is. <laughs> Actually, just the backdrop's kind of nice. Uh, yeah. So just the optics there, uh, pretty cool and a good airport now that's actually going to get revamped as well coming up soon. But anyway, we digress significantly, Richard. Well, just, well, let's get you know, going. Yet, into- a, yet, another, yet another story. I mean, I thought that airport's nice, but it's getting a whole brand new one. Yeah, it's nice. And it's like, I kind of like how small it is. So you just like get there and you get right on the flight. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> Those days are over in the US. Yeah, me too. Me too. <laughs> um, if only the one near my home in the US was actually a regional airport and not just a private jet uh, place for my I, rich I, neighbors I, to fly into. <laughs> I get so excited. I was in Madison, Wisconsin two weekends ago seeing Tyler, my oldest, and and you know flying out. And I'm going to Utah next week in Salt Lake City and also. But anyway, I just... You know, it's just so much fun when you're you're calculating. You know, you know, at Dulles or National here, you you got to be there two hours in advance. At a regional airport, you have a little more flexibility. Yeah, it's just more it's just more human scale. It's a good thing. Yep, totally. Shall we, Richard? What's yes, your one big thing this week? One big thing um, out of many many options. So five Arab countries, including Saudi Arabia, Egypt, and Qatar, are working on a proposal to end the war in Gaza and also set a pathway toward a two-state solution. The Wall Street Journal first reported this. There's been other reporting, too. Saudi Arabia is offering to normalize ties with Israel uh, as part of the bargain. The proposal submitted to Israel via the U.S. also addresses what should happen in Gaza in the immediate aftermath of the war. Arab countries are pushing back against an Israeli request for them to take over direct responsibility for reconstruction and security of the Strip when and if Hamas is removed from power. They argue it's Israel's responsibility to do so. However, Arab countries are proposing to train Palestinian security forces to assist with reviving and reforming the unpopular Palestinian Authority and to eventually help organize elections. Um, Arab officials are still working on the plan, which they hope to finalize in coming weeks. Um, It has been so far been rejected by Israel's government with the creation of a Palestinian state as the main sticking point. Now, this is sort of concurrent with news that there's a, a bunch of diplomatic activity um and actually the bill burns the head of cia is over there now uh from u.s and european officials actively trying to stop the fighting um brett mcgurk was there recently to to discuss the war and a potential hostage uh swap in return for a ceasefire He's, he was meeting egyptian officials in cairo before heading to qatar um, in Brussels, the EU's top diplomat, uh, Joseph Burrell, led a group of foreign ministers meeting senior Arab officials and separately Israeli foreign minister Israel Katz. Um, as we know, and as you know, as, as painfully uh, on the radar and something that people in the region feel, but also globally, that you know, of, of Gaza's 
2.2 million residents, most of whom are now internally displaced, facing a shortage of foods, medicine, clean water. Over 25,000 people, the majority of whom are women and children, have been killed. So it's it's a it's a devastating situation. Now, the reason I chose this is the one big thing. I think anybody who's paid attention to it and and looked at this and and tries to assess the current situation realizes that Israel is going to say no. Um, at this point, uh, the reason I think it's important is because Saudi Arabia continues to try and be a responsible player and a diplomatic diplomatic actor uh, alert to the long view. And I think this is very important because anybody who pays attention to American sort of perceptions of the region, there's long been a narrative uh, in America in particular, of, you know, the plucky Israeli state a democracy that is surrounded by uh, uh, Arabs and others who hate them and deny their right to exist and will never negotiate with them. And so, so this is sort of the, the paradigm I think a lot of Americans over the last many decades thought was accurate. Um, and it's not accurate. And we know this solution because we've talked about and we've covered the O2 Arab Peace Initiative. And, and, and you referenced it earlier. It's interesting how some of these things are coming back around. And just, just, just for a reminder, the Arab Peace Plan, which is initially moved by the Saudis and was adopted by the Arab League in O2, uh, the goals were end the conflict between Israel and the Palestinians, normalize relations between Israel and the entire Arab world, offer Israel normalized ties in exchange for a statehood deal with the Palestinians, require Israel to withdraw from all territories occupied on June 5th, 1967. And it's always understood that was negotiable in terms of land swaps. Accept the establishment of an independent and sovereign Palestinian state and find a just and agreed upon solution for Palestinian refugees. Again, the right of return here is negotiable the way that's worded. Request Israel to reconsider its policies and declare that a just peace is in a strategic option as well. If you break that down, so many things here. So, so, so this is important. So, so we're back again. We're, you know, the normalization with Saudi Arabia is, you know, all the, the the rage. It's all the news. It's all. Can we can we maintain that? Can we keep this alive through this Hamas and this horrible Gaza situation? Well, it's been on the table since 02 with the larger Arab world. Um, you know, it asked for significant concessions with regard to Palestine and, you know, concessions that Israel has never been willing to make. And I would I would posit two things. One, in the Oslo Accords in 93, two things happened that are notable. One, uh, the PLO recognized Israel's right to exist peacefully. Israel never recognized Palestine as a, as a state. It is, Israel accepts the PLO as a representative of the Palestinians. So, you know, it, 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 I think it's been a fumbled, fumbled opportunities on both sides for years, but I just think it's interesting. This last point in that era peace plan, it says, recognize, request Israel to reconsider its policies and declare that the just peace is its strategic option as well. Saudi Arabia is, and, and others in the region are saying, all right, we're in a horrible, devastating situation, but we, we're offering you a way out. 
we're offering you normalization, what you want in the region. You just have to find a just peace and you have to look at it strategically. Now, like I said, if you go back to the beginning, I don't think Israel will accept this and it's not something that I think they're inclined to do in any, any time in the near future. But nonetheless, I think it's important for Saudi Arabia in particular to be seen as this uh, willing diplomatic partner to find a better world and a, and a more secure and peaceful environment in the region. I think it's important for Americans to understand, and it's uh, it's it, I, I endorse it 100%. Really good one, Richard. A, a very um, important topic, a, a topic that really dwarfs all others or many others, you know, for Saudis, for Israelis, for Palestinians, for the region, for the increasingly for the world. Impossible for me to really kind of comment on it in a way that would provide much meaning or impact in just such a short amount of time. Just a few points that I want to make um, uh, just in response to that. First is that, you know, that peace initiative, and we did talk about this, and this was actually a weird part of the pre-recording that was not included, um, but uh, that peace initiative was was from uh, called the King Abdullah Peace Initiative, right, at the time, because it was 2002. Initially, and he was, yeah. Initially, yeah, and then became the Arab Peace Initiative. So, you know, uh, that, that was... 2002 was 22 years ago. It seems like a long time. Um, and it really is a long time. It seems like four months ago or five months ago when this war started was a long time uh, or three months or whatever it's been because uh, it's just so horrible. And just to, to add on to that and to, to just to make a point about out of that, I think that there must be a Palestinian state in order for peace to be lasting. I think what is happening in Gaza is atrocious. And I cannot emphatically state enough how disgusting it is, and I am completely against it. I also uh, am really interested as well in how Americans are viewing all of this, because it's really unfortunate that this is happening in an election year. So everyone looks to Americans to say, why don't you do something to curtail this? Or what, what, is, what is America doing? Now America is getting a lot of blame because it's not doing anything to curtail Israel's sort of, you know, depending on how you view it. And I happen to view it this way, a genocide in Gaza. It's, it's indiscriminate killing of his civilians. I don't know how else to describe it as, as horrible, but increasingly you're seeing Americans, and I think you have said this just now, Richard, you're seeing Americans kind of have a more mature view of the, the subject. I mean, these numbers that are coming out now on how Americans view what's going on, 50% of Democrats and 35% of all US voters believe Israel is committing a genocide in Gaza. So half of all U.S. Democrats and 35 percent of all U.S. Vo voters think that. I mean, 50 percent of Democrats, I, I say that, you know, we're all Americans, but like it's an election year. And so the longer this war drags on, the more of an election issue it becomes. It shouldn't be an election issue. It should be a humanitarian issue. Um, and so it's just and, and all of my Saudi friends on social media, they're just posting about this pretty much nonstop. And, and they should. And I encourage them to keep going. Another thing that's interesting is that 40 49 of the 51 members of the Senate Democratic Caucus backed an amendment supporting a negotiated solution to the conflict that results in an Israeli and Palestinian states living side by side. I mean, 49 of 51 Senate Democrats uh, believe that Palestine should have a state. That's, you know, that's, I actually don't have the numbers to compare that with a year ago, but that's quite something. And I also don't have the numbers for Republicans in front of me, but um, it just, yeah, maybe, maybe I'm not really making a point here or even three points, but it's just no, I it's think, interesting. I think that's important and useful and valuable addition to the one big thing. And I, it, 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 
sort of leads to the the premise of the one big thing is that attitudes are changing in part because you have significant players in the Arab world, Saudi Arabia at the lead, who are behaving very responsibly and, and uh, you know, you know, very soon after the um, the uh, October seventh attack, Saudi Arabia convened a you know a joint meeting between the Arab League and o Organization of Islamic OIC. Um, and one of the things mooted there was, oh, we should do an oil embargo. Again, <clears throat> something that's been done in the past, you know, post nineteen seventy three, something that's been done in the past in support of Palestine, and that was shot down. So you know, no, we're going to go a different route. We're going to try and we're going to play a try and play a different role. We, we have more weight, we have more gravitas, we can plug in and, and try and make a real difference in the long term. And, and I'm hoping that that picture, that feeling, whatever it is, uh, is being internalized by more and more Americans because it's a responsible behavior and it reflects uh, Saudi Arabia that's trying to be a responsible global partner on a really critical issue. So, so what you're speaking to is, you know, are we in the, are we in the middle of a paradigm shift? I think we are. Yeah. Anyway, we just we, I really hope we don't have to talk about this much more on this podcast, Richard, but we will keep bringing it up because it is just an issue that really is just and and you can see it with these hot spots bubbling up all over the region. Um, you know, Yemen, Pakistan and Iran last week. I mean, the missile strikes in Iraq, Syria, it's just at Lebanon. So it's this is something that could really shake up. A lot for for the subject of this podcast, which is Saudi Arabia, the region in the world. So anyway, we will keep close tabs on it. Um, but that was a really good one, Richard. And, and um, you know, we should we should maybe revisit this in a few weeks as well. And uh, we've had a couple of good experts come on and discuss, um, you know, Saudi Arabia's approach toward Israel. Abdulaziz Al Ghashayan was one of them. Um, and that was before what happened happened. So um, maybe we, we should do that. I don't know. I think we'll probably do. Yeah, I think we're due. Um, Richard, actually, my one big thing this week, the upcoming second annual private sector forum, the annual flagship event from the Public Investment Fund, PIF of Saudi Arabia, which is set to kick off here in Riyadh on February 6th to 7th. The event will take place at the King Abdulaziz International Conference Center, which is adjacent to the massive Ritz-Carlton in Riyadh, with the aim to support the fund's private sector engagement strategic initiative the forum will showcase the PIF and its portfolio companies, business opportunities, signal potential opportunities for investors, suppliers, and create probably one of the best networking platforms in Saudi Arabia this year. I am told that the event will effectively double in size this year. And despite that, it's still probably the hottest ticket in town more than Messi versus Ronaldo. Apples and oranges uh, comparison there, but you kind of get my drift. Everyone wants to go to this thing. I am told that res registration interest is unsurprisingly quite high given the lineup of planned high-level speakers from the government private sector. And there's sort of a buzz this year being generated as a result of the success of last year's event. And coming back to that in a moment, there's kind of a lot of detail about it this year um, that I've sort of gathered both from the website and speaking with some people who know about it. It will have some continued themes and elements from what happened last year. Uh, at the inaugural event, but as one might expect with anything related to the PIF is set to build on that in pretty much every way possible. So I want to go through that and what I know about the event, some new information here, not exclusive information, just new uh, that I'm, I'm sort of learning in the moment because this thing's coming up in a few weeks. First, uh, as I hinted at earlier, 
Uh, this event is going to double in size, which is kind of hard to wrap your head around because the first one was at the Kingdom Center, was massive, but there were 4,000 attendees there last year, 8,000 expected this year. The physical size of the event will double. It is moving from the Four Seasons at the Kingdom Center in downtown Riyadh to uh, the Ritz-Carlton or the King Abdelaziz International Conference Center. It's uh, an event space that hosts some of the largest conferences in Riyadh. Uh, I can personally say it is one of the most amazing buildings inside and out I've ever seen in my life. Truly an architectural marvel. It's where they hold the FII, also known as the Davos in the Desert. It will double in the number of PIF portfolio company booths going from 40 booths in the exhibition area to 80 booths. And that is significant. One, I think because it's a lot of booths, it's gonna be a huge kind of like trade show with a lot of access to these PIF portfolio companies, but it also indicates the kind of the number of investments PIF has made and the growing size of its portfolio uh, companies. So kind of interesting there, and it will more than double the number of active workshops at the event from eight last year to 20 this year. Last year's objective was sort of to have a first event for the PIF, uh, showcase Vision 2030, private sector engagement, some success stories. I think this year is sort of meant to make a bigger deal out of it, a ministerial perspective, uh, more success stories, some that originated from last year's event. There will be a roundtable uh, conversations moderated panels some remember that i did that last year which was super cool uh really uh, just really cool conversations with uh gautam sachital uh, from caft uh, jerry Anzarello from daria just really fun and super cool yeah they will be rolling out new local content awards uh to recognize key private sector suppliers they're, they're just sort of like hey we did this last year and it was successful Let's just make it way bigger and more successful, I think, is the attitude that I can kind of garner. Interesting thing that I can share about the event as well is that there is a lot more international interest this year. Last year was mostly local companies and local attendees. Uh, this year is at least 10% international interest. And again, that's up from virtually zero last year. The PIF is also seeing interest uh, from international companies that are aiming to localize in the kingdom and will be coming for this event to sort of make plans on that. There will have some announcements. Um, I think this is what the website says, some partnership announcements, MOUs announced. So I think we'll learn a little bit more and more as we get much closer to the event. But for the attendees that are going, you'll kind of have some access to, it's like the PIF like opens up their jacket or briefcase of offerings and kind of lets you in to see all the things that they're doing and all the diversified sectors that they're exploring and have a footprint in so one big massive exhibition hall like the fii has access to people from each pif companies uh, company so yeah um just a really cool event uh really kind of the one of the biggest shows in saudi arabia throughout the year and that's kind of saying a lot because there are a lot of you know, conferences, trade shows, but, you know, the PIF really has expanded significantly in the last year, um, expanded since it was started or really rejuvenated since the launch of Vision 2030, certainly since 1970 or whenever it was officially incorporated. Um, and I think this is going to put that on display. So something to kind of watch is very exciting um, and should be a pretty exciting show going on over there at the, uh, the Ritz. So pretty cool. I bet it'd be exciting. It sounds like it's going to have a lot of energy. Um, do you have your ticket? 
I do have my ticket. I will be there. You, <laughs> I will be the most junior person in attendance, <laughs> probably. So say hi if you're there. Um, you know, it's it is fascinating. It's, PIF is sort of at the core and the center of of, of so much going on there. Um, it used to be this kind of energy, and, and not that it doesn't still uh, obtain, but you know. It, you know, everybody trying to find out how to contract and do business with Aramco. So when Aramco would have these big, big gatherings and, you know, all sorts of prospective businesses and, and subcontractors and that sort of thing would be, you know, be there. It, you know, obviously the uh, PIF is a whole nother, in essence, power center. Um, I think it's fascinating because we talk all the time on the 966 about the number of things that the PIF is involved with, what they've launched, what they've invested in, where they have equity, um, you know, you know what they're spearheading. And it's just it's impossible to keep up, much less uh, it's just extraordinary, got to be extraordinarily challenging to manage it all. But it sounds like this event is very much sort of going, you know, is intended and it says, it, you know, it's sort of as a bridge between the PIF and its portfolio companies. So you can come in, like you say, you know, those have all, you know, grown, you know, the portfolio companies, what they're involved with is, you know, the number is significantly larger than it was last year. Come here, figure out how to plug in, who's doing what, you know, a lot of the key featured uh, speakers, you know, you mentioned Gautam Sassiatau, but, you know, CAFT, um, Modern, STC, Aqua Power, they'll all have, you know, speakers, but also you can come and figure out how to plug in to these portfolio companies. So it's a great opportunity. And if, you know, you know, all, you know, back in the day, it was all, how do you plug into to a Ramco still is to a you know, certain sector. Uh, and nowadays, you know, if you want to plug into the private sector and what's going on in Saudi Arabia, you need to be here and dealing with PIF. Really fascinating because the PIF has this dual mandate where they invest for return and they invest to simulate the local, the local, economy and to generate local content and to, to diversify the economy. I mean, just put it straightforward. I mean, they, they are investing to become richer and then they also want the kingdom to become richer and more of a self-sustaining economy. For the PIF, they seem to be doing a pretty good job at that. And it's still early, but you know, without this tool, without using investment as a way to jumpstart the local economy, it's really hard to see how Saudi Arabia could accomplish that. Look, these guys are really trying something that has never been done before in history, which is invest their way into diversification with the quasi-public-private investment harm um, that is making money and also stimulating entire new sectors that should have existed before oil, but just didn't because there was really no need. Uh, so anyway, pretty cool show. I imagine it'll be quite well done. <laughs> Just to, just to say it as it is, I think it's going to be sweet to see. And uh, yeah, I'm, I really hope that I can get a cup of Saudi coffee company, Saudi coffee, because I'm now completely addicted to Saudi coffee. It's like full stop. <laughs> I'm actually, I might even phase <laughs> yeah. out black coffee, just go all Saudi coffee. So anyway, <laughs> um, pretty cool uh, stuff. Um, yeah, pretty good. So uh, we will get to yellow. Saudi. Saudi in a minute. In a minute. <laughs> in a minute. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Number one. 
Number one. Oh, this is all the rage. There you go. You know, I, I'm so happy this is yours to read out. <laughs> Holy mackerel. You know, if you know, you 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 can do analysis of of news and that sort of thing. And we do a newsletter every day. And my goodness, what do you think? We review. So every Sustig review has anywhere from twenty five to thirty citations, as well as we have a P1, we have a feature, and then we have several top line things. So we try and work it out. But when we curate and look at all the news, my, what was it? 70% was on this topic. I mean, every article, everything was on this topic. So here it is. Saudi Arabia has said it will open a shop in Riyadh selling alcohol to a select band of non-Muslim expats, the first to open in more than 70 years. The clientele will be limited to diplomatic staff who have for years imported booze and sealed official packages known as diplomatic pouches. Yes, we, I remember these. Um, Saudi officials said the shop would counter, quote, the illicit trade of alcohol, unquote. Customers would need to register beforehand and receive clearance by the government. No one under 21 would be allowed in the store and proper attire is required at all times inside. Rankers will not be able to send a proxy such as a driver so you have to show up to buy your own booze. Monthly limitations would be enforced, the statement said. The new store will be located in Riyadh's diplomatic, diplomatic quarter west of the city center. There's, there is so much to say on this. We'll try to not go too long on this. I tried right as you were reading that, Richard, to look when we discussed this and we had a couple predictions. I feel like we did this like a year and a half ago. And and it was also really popular, at least here among Saudis, kind of predicting like when is it going to happen, not if. And you would have kind of conversations like that. I kind of my feeling until I heard this, which was completely shocking. Um, and this isn't full. You know, you can go buy it anywhere. This really is. I mean, maybe the beginning of, you know, a, a wider rollout may not be. Who knows? But um, really just very interesting because this announcement was very gentle and it first appeared in an Arab news article two days before Reuters picked it up with an exclusive. And so but the Arab news article had some of these details, but it was very just like basic information about a slight reform to the way that diplomats could, you know, have a trade of goods or something like that. I, I, and then two days later, it's this article. And I, if I could count on my phone, it, it's like 25 different people from the US was like, did you hear about this, dude? Look at, there's booze over there. Are you excited? And I'm like, uh, sure, but I can't buy any booze. We're not diplomats. Exactly. I don't have black tie with me. And it says you have to be dressed nicely in the store to buy, <laughs> to buy, the, to buy the alcohol. Um, look, to be honest, and, and I, I want you to weigh in uh, right after this, Richard, but I kind of, I kind of don't miss it when I'm here, which I'm, I'm shocked that I'm saying, but I just don't really think about it. And that's weird because, you know, in the U S it's different. I mean, it's everywhere. It's so social. It's in every store. And here I just like, don't think about it at all. So this doesn't affect me right now. Like I'm not going to be able to go buy some, like if they said there was a store in my new apartment building, I mean, I probably would go down there just to do it. But I mean, <laughs> this doesn't really change anything for me and it won't change anything for a lot of people for the next you know, few months, at least the diplomats, however, you know, you may want to double check some of the press releases that they're sending out the, the days after they send them, because this is, if you're in the DQ and you, you're a diplomat and you have access to this, it's easier for you to get alcohol, I guess. Um, but, uh, yeah pretty cool. I, you know, I would never speculate on, you know, when alcohol and it's not allowed yet, but, but, and I'm agree with you. Uh, you know, I don't drink much. I don't miss it. 
uh, when I'm over there. Didn't miss it when I lived there. Um, just for background, but alcohol was not always prohibited in in Saudi Arabia. It became 1950, prohibited. right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, sorry to cut of, you off. No, no. Uh, King Abdulaziz uh, Ibn Saud, one of his sons, actually got drunk and 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 shot a British diplomat. This is in 1952, so alcohol was banned, and I think a lot of a lot of Saudis are happy with that. Uh, with regard to this particular shop, patrons will be limited 240 points of alcohol per month. So one liter of spirits will be worth six points, one liter of wine, three points, and one liter of beer, one point. So in theory, you could buy 240 liters of beer in a month. Uh, there are no suggestions that clientele will be widened to ordinary foreigners in the kingdom without diplomatic privilege privileges. I think, <clears throat> again, I personally don't think you know, alcohol is needed. I, I think, you know, there are certain communities like the yachting community who, you know, in Saudi Arabia is making a big push to attract the yachting community on their side of the Red Sea. And, and you know, that alcohol is a big element in that, um, you know, obviously the hospitality people, you know, it's important to them. So I, I can't speak to people's preferences. I just think it's fascinating. This is so Saudi in the sense to sort of stick your toe in the water, see what it's, see how it works. But also this is so vision 2030 because we have to remember that there's a huge black market in alcohol in Saudi Arabia. You know, you know, people can get alcohol in Saudi Arabia. People are providing it, you know, and, and there are ways to do it, even though it's not legal. Um, this is revenue untapped. <laughs> and, you know, I, I'm reminded a little bit of what's happened with, um, the Hajj and the Umrah uh, support entities, you know, companies that would book and, and travel and, and, and supervise uh, Hajj and that sort of thing. And that Saudi Arabia for the longest time said, you know, our, our job is just to, to serve and make available the, the two holy mosques and that sort of thing. But now there's an official portal where you can come through, you book all these things. All right. So Saudi Arabia has captured that revenue stream. And that's an that's a smart thing to do, you know. And part of building their their uh, non oil economy and part of building the tourism, they've captured that revenue stream that didn't they didn't have before. Ostensibly, they can make it better and more more uniform and, and more satisfying for consumers customers. If you look down the light way, and if you if you say at some point, you know, um, alcohol is going to be part of, you know, uh, certain areas maybe, you know, hospitality or tourism spots or hotels for uh, whomever, you know, this is another revenue stream through taxation and that sort of thing. So anyway, this is really interesting. I think people would, you know, find the novelty of it, but it's, a, this is a very small pinprick. So addressing an audience that already drinks, the diplomatic community already gets alcohol. Um, so it's essentially getting that revenue stream. And, uh, you know, all the folks that are dealing in the black market and, and smuggling alcohol in Saudi Arabia probably aren't threatened by this because they uh, still have, you know, they still have a market and they still have customers, but it's a, it's a toe in the water. Yeah. I, I love that you identified two heavy drinking communities, the <laughs> diplomats of the world and the captains or mariners or yachters of the world, <laughs> um, which is funny because um, my yacht club at home is 
heavy, heavy drinking yacht club. Yeah. And it's the thing, it kind of stands out where you're like, oh, we kind of joined for the pool. We, you know, and it's just alcohols everywhere. Um, <laughs> I, and I, you know, I, I am aware that there is a black market. I've never like seen, you know, I don't, I wouldn't know how to get some on the black market, to be honest with you. And I, I wouldn't even try. But um, I think you're right. I think what's interesting about this too is the way that it fits into the vision, right? It, this isn't rolling out, you know, access to movie theaters or women driving, both of which are reforms people from the outside looking in said, hey, you got to do this if you want to be, you know, a target of investment or where we relocate our global or regional HQ. This is something that has been truly in the Vision 20 way, Vision 2030 way has been worked backward toward. And that is, there's so many things that needed to happen first before this was even considered. And it's not even a thing yet, but it's like, if it is a thing, which is what we're talking about, it, if it does become a thing, it'll be similarly rolled out where it makes sense to achieve a goal that's higher up versus, hey, we're just doing this because we want to do it or because we think other people want it. It's like, this may do it because we need to capture some revenue and because you know these groups are going to be drinking anyway, or this helps us achieve key elements of the vision. So like, you know, we're going to do it for that reason, not because, um, you know, of any other reason. I think this is interesting, too, because, you know, a lot of Saudis don't know this. And I, I love telling the story, but America tried and did, in fact, outlaw alcohol for a really long time. Uh, it seems common knowledge to Americans, but there was a prohibition and it failed. And the best documentary I've ever seen in my life is Ken Burns's documentary on prohibition. It's such a good mm. story about America and who we are as a nation and why prohibition failed and why it was a good idea in the first place and how bad things were and how it accomplished good things. Um, so anyway, we could do a whole show on this, Richard. And uh, but I think, we, you know, <laughs> there's a lot to say, <laughs> but uh, well, yeah, I mean, there'll be more. There'll be more. Yep. This is this is, you know, this is coming and And it's notable, you know, largely because it's Saudi Arabia. Um, but, you know, it'll be interesting. It'll be interesting how they handle some of the new. Um, you know, so many of the new things coming in now, a lot of some of the neom uh initiatives red sea initiatives are luxury luxury super luxe initiatives and maybe in these areas you you know you, that are highly sequestered you can do this but again so much of what saudi arabia does and has done women driving you know the the changes that have a social impact um can be uh supported for economic reasons and if you really wanted to argue that there's untapped resources and, and uh, revenue in terms of the illicit uh, market for alcohol, well, maybe that's a start. Again, I'm like you. I don't need it. Don't care. I don't even know that Saudi Arabia needs it. They're, you know, they're Saudi, they're, they're, their tourism numbers are, are bouncing nicely. But, you know, that's not a decision I make. Yeah. And as an American, I, I don't really like care to comment. I kind of like that there's nothing here. So it's just not even a consideration. Um, so, I mean, yeah. our commentary is only made in that fashion, just sort of, uh, you know. I, I think, I think it's, yeah. sorry to interrupt. I, I think, it, but it's, it's really, you know, when people ask, and, the, you know, my oldest, we were talking about something else. He said, hey, I just saw something on Twitter about Saudi Arabia and outlawing alcohol. You know, this was a this was a very small slice of the expat community that was already getting alcohol. Yeah, was already authorized to get alcohol. It's just been formalized, you know, 
it's not like any, it's not like any, you know, it's been, it's not like it's the access to alcohol has been expanded. Essentially Saudi Arabia is just capturing the revenue now. Right. And in fact, it has not been expanded at all. And I would right. tell you if I could go buy some, but I cannot. And yet you're right. That's a good point because it's like a lot of the headlines were like Saudi Arabia opens door to alcohol, opens first liquor store. If you're reading Twitter, you're getting just headlines. You now think that you can get booze in Saudi Arabia. You can't. So uh, if that's really important to you, uh, you know, read the first paragraph of whatever story you thought you read. <laughs> anyway, yellow number two, rapper, <laughs> rapper Thai dollar signs performance in Jeddah's oldest neighborhood known as Al-Balad along artists like Wu-Tang Clan and Mejaleza underscored efforts to revamp the UNESCO World Heritage Site, expanding its allure for young Saudis and foreigners beyond such events. As Ballad Beast, the 2.5 square kilometer, which is one square mile, I'm glad this, that was put in there, uh, area is being transformed into an influx of cafes, museums, performance spaces, and workshops for artists and craftspeople. UNESCO granted Albalad World Heritage Site status in 2014 and in 2018, quote, revitalization efforts overseen by the culture ministry began. Um, yeah, you know. So this is a, 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 a lot of money's coming into Jeddah. We've got a twenty billion dollar revitalization program in the city center. You've got they, they, this is not in El Balad, but um, you know they raised uh, giving a part of the city for new neighborhoods and that sort of thing. Obviously, they're revitalizing El Balad. El Balad is you know speaks to a lot of Saudis. It's a you know it's a one of the first UNESCO World Heritage sites. It's a cool place. It's an amazing story. It's been around for years. Um, but I, I, I think this is just interesting, you know, and this is the, this will be the constant, um, you know, balancing of, of progress with, uh, you know, existing traditions and, and the culture as people have become accustomed to it. So, um, it, it, it's a good story, I, you know, and I think, I think Jeddah, you know, a lot of this is going on in Saudi, uh, you know, Jeddah is it's going to have to go through the same thing. So attitudes will be one way or another. It is interesting. One of the comments from this article, which was um, in El Monitor, which is a great publication, by the way, um, was saying, you know, look, young people wouldn't be here otherwise. So, you know, perhaps you're a little upset with, uh, you know, Ty Dalla, you know, doing shout outs to all the pretty women. But uh you know, it, it, you know, the, the event and events like it, uh, you know, bring energy and interest to the, to the area that otherwise these folks would be down by the Corniche. Yeah. Ty Dalla's comments or shout outs were quite asinine. Um, <laughs> well, you know, what, the type Kel of surprise. Kel surprise. <laughs> yeah. The type of thing you'd say in the U S and you can say in the U S um, didn't like yeah. seeing that probably not appropriate, but anyway, um, yeah, uh, very interesting. Yellow number three, uh, the rapidly growing gaming market in Saudi Arabia has received a huge boost from after Dubai-based esports brand True Gamers signed a franchise deal worth $45 million with investment from Falak, reports Mead, another great publication. The investment will involve the creation of 150, 150 esports clubs across Saudi and seeks to capitalize on a market that is expected to expand by over 8% annually over the next three years, eventually attaining a market value of $1.3 billion by 2027. 
The first esports venue following the deal is expected to be open within the next six months in Jeddah. By the end of 2024, the aim is to have 10 venues operating throughout the kingdom. There are also plans to benefit from the game, true gamers' qualities as an event organizer in the UAE, where it already hosts tournaments, with plans to roll out similar events throughout Saudi Arabia. Man, esports is just red hot right now, and Saudi Arabia is leaning really hard into it. Um, this is a good story. I think the kingdom has a obscenely large esports budget all in. Um, in the tens of billions of dollars. So 30, yeah. 37 billion is I think 30, is what's committed. 37 billion. A lot of that is through, you know, investments and ownership stakes from the PIF, savvy games, etc. But um yeah, I just, because I don't play video games, I kind of it's it's shocking to me how big that sector is now. Um it is. I, yeah. Yeah, very I, cool. I like this. Yeah, I like this story because it came out with another story, ESL Face It Group, which is an esports uh, business backed by the PIF. So probably at that private sector forum, you you know, in terms of um, subsidiaries or investments, ESL will probably be there. They recently sort of took over the Overwatch 2 champion series. I guess it was previously done by Microsoft and this run aground. So now they've invested in that. They also, we've covered it on this, um, uh, Populous, the architectural firm, is building a, a world-class arena in Kadia, esports arena. You know, five thousand plus seater esports arena, just with you know, just for esports. The reason I think this is important, um, and it's something we talk about a lot. It's one thing for the PIF to spend money on a sector in Saudi Arabia. It's another thing for a non-Saudi firm to determine that that sector has enough return on investment to invest themselves. And so this sort of investment is especially meaningful because it's an assessment, you know, by a company on a pure revenue, you know, cost benefit basis. This is, this is worth it to us. And that's when you start getting investment. That's when you get started. That's when you start building an economy when it's not, you know, this isn't a loss leader. This isn't, we're trying to build out a sector. You know, this is somebody going, all right, you know, our money is better invested here than somewhere else. And so I, I think it's a, I think it's an important little yellow. At which point too, the PIF can divest, get out of that sector if it's healthy enough, and then exactly. they're not a direct compete. No one's competing directly with the government. So um, exactly. totally. Yellow number four, a Saudi doctor and my new best friend saw his fortune close in on $12 billion <laughs> on Thursday as shares of his healthcare firm rebounded returning him to the ranks of the Middle East's wealthiest private individuals. Shares in Suleiman Al-Habib's eponymous company have surged 30% since hitting a one-year low in October. That's made Al-Habib, who founded the firm and holds a 40% stake, <laughs> the third richest person in the Middle East, who's not a member of the royal family, uh, of a royal family, I should say, according to the Bloomberg Billionaires Index. Mabrouk Suleiman. <laughs> Dr. Suleiman. <laughs> I love this one. You threw this one in there because I guess he's he, he, he opened with a single clinic in 1993. If you spend any time in Saudi, you see his clinics. It's it's everywhere, yeah. And 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 they don't look, you know, you know, there's in Saudi there's a lot of, you know, sort of in the US it would it would I don't know, the, the, the pejorative term would be a strip mall, but it's not necessarily a strip mall. You know, it's roadside. 
So if you're driving down the middle of somewhere, you see a Suleiman, uh, you know, a Habib clinic, and they're everywhere. It's a huge sign. <clears throat> and I just, again, I've been seeing them for decades, and 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 you you never really think about it, but <laughs> you know, he operates 22 medical facilities, 22 pharmacies, 10 hospitals. Um, actually, they have 10 hospitals and medical centers under development. So anyway, he's everywhere and, and good for him. And it's a nice, it's a nice, you know, businessman makes good story, you know, on his own. Yeah. A local businessman as well. The couple hospitals I've seen his name on have been quite sizable. So they must be the newer ones that, you know, yeah. maybe even with some of this IPO cash they had built out. There's a Suleiman El Habib sort of pharmacy <clears throat> medical center uh, in the digital city that's really nice. Um, but that name is kind of everywhere. Um, yeah, imagine mm -hmm. being that rich uh, and then also being a doctor. How many ladies would be very excited to meet you. Well, he, uh, is, he, is in, he is in his seventies. That's okay. So, you so know, I'm sure he's still, he's still, yeah. um, uh, um, but we digress here on the nine, six, six. We do. Uh, yellow number five, uh, me. Uh, so numerous, law, yep. <laughs> numerous foreign law firms are attempting to set up offices in Saudi Arabia following changes to the country's code of law practice, which mean that being affiliated with a local firm is no longer sufficient. Under the amended code, firms must now establish their own offices in Saudi Arabia or form a partnership with local lawyers in order to bid for work. Additionally, two partners from the law firm must live in Saudi Arabia for a minimum of 100 days a year, 180 days a year, while 50% of the firm's lawyers in the country must be Saudi national. Any work that at the firm that relates to Saudi law cannot be passed to foreign offices and instead must be wholly conducted in the local branch. Further, at least 70% of fees generated by the office must stay within the country and no more than 30% of advisory work can be exported to lawyers working outside of Saudi Arabia. Finally, uh, firms must renew their license every five years. Yeah. Um, this one kind of speaks for itself. It, it sort of demonstrates a maturing legal system in Saudi Arabia, maturing, um, you know, code of laws as discussed in this, and then a maturing sort of set of very capable local Saudi lawyers who speak Arabic and English and are invaluable if you're a foreign law firm seeking to get in on some of the deals and advisory work here. So, I mean, this is like one of those things where, you know, when you talk about Vision 2030, it would be, there's so many things to mention, but like this would be evidence that it's working in my opinion, um, because it shows that there is new interest in having some of these, you know, local lawyers and local law firms that are every bit as capable as the, you know, blue chip law firms that are trying to get in and set up in Saudi Arabia. And by the way, that number is increasing dramatically. It's a very hot market for law firms to expand to from the United States and from, you know, elsewhere in the world. It just shows that, you know, that they're not as needed as they may have been, uh, as far as I can tell. So pretty, pretty interesting story. It is a good story. Um, and as a little bit of foreshadowing, uh, Iman al-Hussein is going to join us in a couple episodes to talk about the legal and judicial reform in Saudi Arabia and why it's been so important in terms of uh, 
revive, you know, sort of in terms of in the context of Vision 2030, but in also making uh, doing business in the kingdom that much more attractive. And she'll talk about other things, but she's really good on this. Yeah, this is a good story because it, it's it's another sector where Saudi Arabia is essentially doing two things with this, and it, it, you know, at least two things. One is capturing revenue that had been going elsewhere. And two, it's really promoting and um, trying to catalyze more job opportunities for Saudis. You know, and opportunities not only for Saudi lawyers in this essence, in this situation, to have more jobs, but also to to become part of uh, and, and upskill just vis-a-vis, -vis, you know, working with a large law firm and Western lawyers who are there for at least 100 days a year. So, you know, it's capturing those skills as well as capturing revenue that might have been might have gone elsewhere. You know, and again, they've been doing this sector by sector. It's interesting that it's in the legal sector now. So uh, big news. Very cool. Yellow number six, wrapping it up for the boys. Episode 120, the Israel-Hamas war has halted progress on what's known as the India-Middle East-Europe India, East, Economic Corridor, a project that was touted last year by Washington and key allies that envisions building new rail links across the Arabian Peninsula. As Houthi attacks disrupt Red Sea shipping and turmoil spreads across the region, IMEC is effectively on ice. It really should be IMEC with like three E's in there. It's just, they just cut out two yeah. E's. That's not cool. That's a setback for U.S. strategy because the plan served multiple purposes to counter China's Belt and Road Infrastructure Program, build influence in the so-called Global South, and speed up the hoped-for rapprochement between Israel and Saudi Arabia. Yeah, um, threw this one in sort of because it sort of ties in with my one big thing. Um, I'm going to be really blunt here because it's not just this. Because the reality is that Saudi Arabia, I mean, you know, Saudi Arabia is at the heart of this. India, you know, that India, Middle East, Europe cor economic corridor, Saudi Arabia is right at the heart of it. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's an important U.S.-Saudi initiative. It's an important response by the U.S. to meet Saudi Arabia where it is now, which is trying to be sort of the the logistical and and sort of transport center of Europe, Asia, and Africa. Um, so it is good, and as as the the Yama mentions, it also is a counter to China's uh, Belt and Road Infrastructure Program, which has problems of its own. So. This is this is an interesting proposition. It's it's theoretical right now. You know, it's very early on it, but implicit in this is that in a in a new world, this also links Israel with the region in a in a very significant economic way. <clears throat> and as we said, as its lead is, Israel Hamas has halted progress on this. So, as we talked about the one big thing when we talked about Saudi and other. Uh, Arab states diplomacy and trying to find a way out in a, in a, in a framework following uh, the cessation of hostilities in Gaza. Israel needs to ask itself what it wants. You know, does mm -hmm. it want to be part of the region in a normalized way? Or does it want, uh, you know, to control, you know, every inch of Judea and Samaria and, and deal with an oppressed you know, Palestinian community within its, its quote unquote not borders per se, but it's, 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 it's areas of control and areas of concern. 
So, I mean, I guess that's, you know, that's, that's a very inelegant way of saying it, but I do think a lot of what's coming down in terms of how this, this region unfolds and how Gaza is resolved and what comes next is really Israel's decision about what it wants. And if it insists on, you know, its traditional path of occupying uh, Palestinian territories uh, without uh, recourse to legitimate and, and fair uh, resolution, it, it, you know, it, it's not going to get what it wants. Totally. <laughs> yeah, so, so okay. yeah, we can, you know, a good, you know, a, a again, good one to end on. probably very simplistic, but I mean, uh, you know, maybe. So anyway, that's that's sort of my thinking. They've got a decision to make. I don't know if they're going to be. We'll see what they do. Agreed. And I think the sponsors of this project, which which is cool, really should change it to iMeek. You know, because it, it is, it really is more distinctive. IMEC could be anything. It sounds like OPEC, kind of just IMEC. Give me IMEC with three E's. <laughs> then you'll know exactly what you're talking about. Uh, we'll put a bow on it with that. Richard, my Uber's here. We're going to the DQ later. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Awesome. And no, I'm awesome. just kidding. <laughs> I'm going to immediately <laughs> to sleep after this, but uh, it's been a pleasure as always. And I will see you next week. Excellent. Always a joy. Thank you, and sleep well. <laughs>